Galatians chapter 2. Chapter 2. We're going to finish the chapter this morning. To be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take these words that you inspired Paul to write, to write almost 2,000 years ago, and I pray that you would speak to us afresh this day, Lord. Thank you that your word is living and active, and your word searches our hearts and divides between what is of man and what is of you. And Lord, I pray that you would give us all ears to hear what you are saying and take away distractions, Lord. We live by hearing you, Lord. It's the most important thing. Lord, speak to us. If anyone here is not a Christian and doesn't understand the things that we're going to talk about, would you take the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, your Son, and would you please break through their stubborn and hard heart, Lord, and help them to understand what the gospel is all about. And for us Christians this morning, Lord, I pray that you would refresh us and remind us of the truth that we believe and help us to realize that we need to listen to it with just as much um, uh, need as non-believers do. Help us to hear, Lord. Help us to see who you are through your word, through what you have done. We praise you. We pray that this would be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of this sermon this morning is Self-Righteousness Crushed to a Bloody Pulp by the Cross. Self-Righteousness Crushed to a Bloody Pulp by the Cross. A Sunday school teacher was giving a lesson to her little children. She had a bunch of little kids with her in her class. And this Sunday school teacher wanted to share with these kids the gospel or see where they under, how they understood the gospel. And so she asked the class, so how does a person get to heaven, kids? How does a person get to heaven? Do you get to heaven by doing all your chores at home and listening to your mom and your dad and coming to church and being good in church and quiet? And all the kids said, no, that's not how you get to heaven. It's okay, do you get to heaven by serving the community and, and taking care of sick people and going to the hospital and visiting them and, and just being a really nice person in society? And all the kids said, no, that's not how you do it. And she said a few other good deeds. Is this how you get to heaven, kids? Is it, is it by doing all these nice things and good things and obeying God's commandments? No, that's not how it is. And she's really happy as she, she's hearing these no's because she's like, hey, these kids are really understanding. And then she says, so how does someone get to heaven? How do you get to heaven? And this one boy raises his hand and says, teacher, you got to be dead to get to heaven. <laughs> you got to be dead. Of course, what this boy meant is, 
in his simplicity, just the death that everyone's going to undergo, right? In order to get into the afterlife, you got to die. This is what this kid's thinking. So he's just thinking of the death everyone's going to experience and undergo. In another sense, however, what that boy answered was very profound. you got to die to get to heaven. There is a death that you must die that not everyone will undergo. According to this text, there's a death that you must die that not everyone is going to undergo. We're not just talking about the death everyone will undergo. We're talking about, according to the text, a death with Christ, as Paul says. And that's how a person gets to heaven. It's this death we're going to be exploring and talking about this morning. There are different ways people think about death, and I've talked about this several times here at All Saints Church. For many people, death is simply a natural part of life. If you ask them, why do we die? They don't have an answer. They just say, it's just the way it is. It's just nature taking its course. Death, to many people, is not a bad thing, or at least, I mean, it is a bad thing. Nobody wants to die, but they tell themselves it's not a bad thing. They keep trying to convince themselves it's not a bad thing. And they they try to convince themselves, yeah, you know, when we die, after that, it's just non-existence. We're just evolved mammals, and there is no afterlife. Death is just natural. There won't be an existence after this life. Or for other people who are more religiously inclined, they'll say, no, death isn't a bad thing at all. Death is just something that is built into the way God made the world. And you don't need to be afraid of it. It's just your passage into level two. It's just your passage into the next stage of existence. Nothing bad about it at all. Don't be scared. It's just going through a door. That's all. But according to the Bible, none of these are true. According to the Bible, we as Christians should know, most of all, that death is, first of all, an unnatural thing. That when God created the world, there was no death in this world. There was a there was a command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat from it, if you disobey, if you violate this commandment, then you will die. But death was actually not a, an original feature of the world that God created. It was unnatural. And the Bible says that death is a bad thing. It even calls it an enemy that's going to be defeated. Death is the punishment for sin or in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, death is the wages of sin. That's what death is. And as Christians, we must not forget it. Now, we don't have to be afraid of death, right? Because we've been redeemed, we've been saved from our sins, and so it's lost its sting. But that doesn't mean death is a good thing, or merely a door, or something natural. If it wasn't for the gospel, we would have no hope. You know, when I go to funerals, I often think about I often want to just stand up and ask people, you know, why, let's think about why this has to happen. I mean, everyone's sad, right? It's a funeral. Someone you loved is dead. And I just want to ask people, if I, if I could get in front of the microphone, why does this person have to die? And if they say, well, that's just the way it is, I would respond, well, why is that the way it is? I mean, we can see clearly that there's a God and he created this world. Why would God create the, a world like this? And then I would go to the Bible and explain he didn't. He created it without this. But it's because of our sin that this has happened. It's because of the wages of sin that we have funerals. Can you imagine we'd have no funerals if it wasn't for sin? Death is a blow to self-righteousness. 
Death is a blow to all of our self-righteousness. For the Bible, for clearly we all die, and the Bible says that we all die because all sin. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Death came upon all men because all sin. Now some people try to evade this conclusion, and they say it's not fair that we all die because we didn't all sin. We're just dying because of the sins of our fathers, God. That's not fair. It was Adam who ate from the tree. I never saw the tree of of good and evil in my life, you know? And so they want to evade the conclusion that they themselves have sinned by blaming death on their father and saying God's not fair. This is what Ezekiel chapter 18 is all about. The people of Israel are complaining to God, say, God, it's not fair that you punish us for the sins of our fathers. And God corrects their understanding and says, you know, it's never been that way. I don't punish you for the sins of your fathers. I punish you for your own sins. The soul that sins shall die. And look, you're dying. Why? Because you're a sinner. Now, God doesn't put us each on probation like he did Adam. But the, the fact of the matter is, we all sinned with Adam when he sinned. This is the point. Uh, the law was given to prove this point. He says, okay, if you say that you're different than your father Adam, if you think that you aren't like him and it's unfair that you're being punished because he sinned and you didn't, well, here's the law. Do it and you'll live. That's what the Bible says, the scripture says. Just do the law and you'll live. If you're really different, then prove it. Do it and you'll live. But no one does. For all sin and fall short of the glory of God. No one will be justified by doing the law. The law shows us, that gives us the knowledge of our sin. It exposes, it shows us, yep, you're just like Adam. See, you're no different. You were involved in the sin that Adam committed. The way that God sees humanity, I think, is like a, a root in a branch or like a plant. Adam is the seed and we all kind of just grew out of him. But we're all the same as him. We're organically connected to him. We have the same nature as him. And so he sinned and so do we all sin. We were all there when Adam fell and we prove that on a daily basis by being the same as he. All die because all sin. You and I will die because of our sin. Because we, like Adam, sin. Because we, in Adam, sin. Death is a blow to your self-righteousness. Have you ever thought about it like that? The reason I physically die is because I'm not righteous. It's a blow to your self-righteousness. Yet people still try to evade this. And they say, well, look, the Bible talks about the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. So there are righteous people in this world. Even though we're all going to die, there's going to be a resurrection of the righteous. And so there are righteous people in this world. Even though I may physically die, it doesn't mean I am necessarily unrighteous. It just hasn't manifested that I'm righteous yet. It's just the effects of the fall. I mean, I'm still dying just because of the effects of the fall. But in God's good timing, I'm going to rise from the dead, proving that I am righteous. And there are two different categories of people. There are righteous and unrighteous people. And I'm righteous. And one day is going to prove that. And you know, there's a lot of truth to this quote, quote, evasion. It's true that there is a resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the unrighteous. It's true that in God's timing, God's going to manifest who is righteous and who isn't. It's true that there is a distinction in this world between righteousness and unrighteousness, or righteous people and unrighteous people. But, to interpret these true things in a way that preserves self-righteousness is wrong. 
So yes, I believe in two categories of people, the righteous and the unrighteous. But it's not because of what these self-righteous people think. It's not because there are some people who in and of themselves are righteous and some people who in and of themselves are not righteous. We as Christians know the answer to this, right? It's the gospel that gives us the answer. Yes, there are righteous people, but not because of what they do. Not because of their obedience to the law. Not because of their keeping of the commandments. Considered from that perspective, there's only one category, and that's unrighteous. But through Christ and faith in Him, there are people who are even now righteous, even though they're going to die like everyone else, and they will be resurrected and manifested to be so. But notice it's not self-righteousness. We are all, in ourselves, unrighteous. Now this is the situation that's going on at Antioch. When, Pete, when Paul opposes Peter, the Jews that came from Jerusalem wanted to maintain a distinction, a self-righteous distinction. They wanted to maintain two different categories of people based upon self-righteousness. There are Gentiles and there are Jews. There, they are, there are sinners and there are righteous people. And it is based upon how we live that that category, those two categories are defined and determined. And that's what's going on here in Antioch. These guys come down. They don't like the preaching of righteousness through faith. They don't like the preaching of Paul. And Peter, wanting to accommodate them and not offend them, starts playing their game and says, oh yeah, you know what, the Gentiles... Um, I mean, I, Peter believed they were righteous through faith, but he doesn't want to offend them, so he separates. And Paul calls them out before them all. Paul, you're not a sinner like the Gentiles, but even you know that no one is justified by the keeping of the law, that we really aren't different, that we're justified only through faith. You're righteous and they're righteous through faith only, not because of the things that we do. Brothers and sisters, this whole incident at Antioch from verse 11 to verse 21 is all about, register this in your mind, it's all about the obliteration of self-righteousness. That's the whole point here at Antioch in this incident. The obliteration of self-righteousness. That everyone is equally a sinner in need of grace and that righteousness comes through faith alone and not by our works. And this becomes extra clear in the passage that we read this morning, verse 17 through verse 21. This is the main point I want to make this morning, that self-righteousness is obliterated in Christ. I'd like us to keep that in the forefront of our mind as we look at this text. Look at verse 17. The first point I'd like to make this morning, um, in keeping with this theme that self-righteousness is obliterated, is that the gospel reveals that all men are equally unrighteous. Look at verse 17. The gospel reveals that all men are equally unrighteous. In verse 17, Paul states a fact, and then an objection to that, that was evidently a, a real accusation in his day. If while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ a minister of sin? Here's the fact. The process of becoming justified in Christ requires the recognition that you are a sinner. The process of becoming justified in Christ requires the recognition that you are a sinner the recognition that you're a sinner. It doesn't require you 
to be made a sinner. It's not like, hey, you're righteous, you need to stop being righteous and be bad so you can be saved by Jesus. It's a recognition. In fact, the Greek word here found is the word eureka. The one that, you ever heard that word when someone discovers something? Eureka! The process of becoming justified in Christ requires this eureka experience of you realizing and recognizing that you are a sinner just like everybody else. I like the word also here in verse 17. We ourselves also have been found sinners. He just said earlier that the Gentiles are the sinners, not us Jews. There's a little bit of sarcasm there. The Gentiles are sinners, not us Jews. Well, hold on. Even we Gentiles are sinners as well. We are, or Jews, yes. If seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews too also have been found, like the Gentiles, to be sinners, to be lawbreakers, to be without God and without hope, and needing the grace of Christ. Jews and Gentiles are equally sinners. This is the glorious thing about Christianity and the thing that the world finds so obnoxious about Christianity is that we proclaim the truth that everybody is equally guilty and a sinner. It's glorious, isn't it? This is one of the things that makes Christianity Christianity. If we lose this, we don't have Christianity anymore. We don't have the gospel anymore. And we proclaim it as Christians. And for us as Christians, we know it's glorious. It means we don't look down on one another. It means we have humility before each other, realizing we're all in the same boat. It means we don't think, we don't have self-righteous pride, say, I'm better than you. And it, and it shows we all have the same hope. We all rejoice in the fact that God is a gracious God towards undeserving people. For us, it's glorious. For the world, it's obnoxious. They hate being told that everybody's equal. You tell that to people, we're all equally sinners. They, they spit at that. They don't like it. And yet, justification in Christ is inseparable from understanding that you are a sinner. Gandhi, the, the great Hindu uh, teacher and leader, was asked once, why don't you embrace Christianity? And here's what Gandhi said, I don't have any need to embrace Christianity. I quote, to be a good Hindu also means that I would be a good Christian. There is no need for me to join your creed to be a believer in the beauty of the teachings of Jesus or try to follow his example. So why don't you become a Christian, Gandhi? No need. I can be a good person as a Hindu, right? I don't need to be a Christian to be a good person. I can be a Hindu and be a good person. If I'd be a good Hindu, it's like being a good Christian, right? See, he didn't understand that he's a sinner and that Christianity isn't like Hinduism. It's just be a good person, follow the rules. He says, I don't need to believe in the be a Christian to believe in the beauty of Jesus' teachings. He didn't understand Jesus' teachings. And so Gandhi rejected Christ he didn't think he did, but he did, because he didn't understand that he was unrighteous, just like everyone else, and in need of justification through Christ by faith, in need of a Savior, in need of the death of Christ. He didn't understand. This is why people don't become real Christians. People become Christians, or they think they become Christians, but they think that it's just about joining a club and a community of being good. But people don't become real Christians because, one, they either don't realize that they are sinners like everybody else, like, the, like the, the sinner that they look at and think is the worst. They're just like that and they need Christ. 
or they, they understand that's what Christianity is and they don't want anything to do with it. Let me ask you, do you, do you understand that you are a sinner just like everybody else? And in your mind, think of a sinner. Think of the stereotypical sinner. That's the bad guy who's going to hell. Do you understand that you are also a sinner like that person? Also, just as much a need as that person, and you cannot, by your own efforts, improve yourself or make yourself acceptable to God. You need Christ. And that's why you're a Christian. Not because you need to be, you want to be a good person, but you're a Christian because acknowledging your need, you've come to Christ for salvation. Do you get that? Now there's an objection here, and this objection in verse 17 is a common one and based on a misunderstanding. It's based on a failure to grasp the Eureka that we are discovered to be sinners. And Paul elaborates on this uh, objection in the next few verses. If justification in Christ requires that I be a sinner, is Christ then a minister of sin? Does Christ help sin along? Does Christ serve the interests of sin? Does Christ promote sin? Is Christ against the law which is against sin? This is what the objection is. This Christ of yours obliterates the distinction between good and bad people. This Christ of yours destroys any incentive to be good. This Christ of yours requires us to be like those sinners, the Gentiles over there. This Christ of yours nullifies the law. This is what you're preaching now, Paul. This would have been an objection that the Jews would have had to Paul's preaching. Before you came along, Paul, it was nice and neat. We understood there's good people and bad people. We understood that you know we're supposed to be good and do the things God commands. And you're coming now and saying that the Messiah that we're all waiting for, the whole point here is to obliterate that distinction. We all have to realize we're sinners. This is going to destroy the incentive to obedience and destroy any hope of being a good person. This, ha- this objection has not gotten old, but if we don't hear it, it's because we're not preaching the gospel. If you preach the gospel, you'll hear this objection. Paul answers with his usual phrase, may genoita, which means may it never be. This is not how it is. May it never be this way. You're totally wrong in your thinking if you think that's the way reality or the gospel is. Christ is not serving sin and helping sin. He's exposing sin. You see, you guys who are self-righteous are the ones who are helping sin along. You're the ones who are hiding in the dark, pretending you're not sinners. All along, you are a sinner and you're just hiding that. You're not being honest. Christ is not serving sin. He's light coming into the darkness, providing for us the only solution to sin. On the contrary, Christ actually makes two categories of people, the righteous and the unrighteous, but not in any self-righteous way, but in a true way. Self-righteousness really only creates one category, and that's unrighteousness. Christ provides holy incentives to be good and to obey the, and to follow the teachings uh, of the law. Self-righteousness only provides unholy incentives to do good works which is to try to make yourself right before God. Christ deals with both the penalty and the power of sin. In Christ, we find the solution to the punishment that is death and also to sin's gripping power. There's freedom in Christ. 
Self-righteousness provides neither the solution for the penalty or the power of sin. It only makes things worse. Christ alone upholds the law. Self-righteousness ignores the law. So Paul answers, no, that's not how it is at all. He elaborates here in verse 18 and 19. The law is the means by which the gospel shows us we are sinners. Paul elaborates here in verse 18 and 19 on their misunderstanding that they're missing the eureka. Look at verse 18. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now this is admittedly a difficult passage. Paul moves to the first person to make his point. He wasn't talking in the first person, but now he's speaking in the first person from his own experience. He once thought in terms of self-righteous categories. And now Paul realizes that he is an unrighteous one like everyone else in need of Christ. So he himself understood what it means to go through this transition and his mind change. Now what does he mean here when he says, if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor? Some people say, uh, there's various answers to this actually. If you go to the commentaries, you're not going to find a uniform answer. Some people say that he's talking about the law. If I rebuild the law after it was destroyed by Christianity or by Christ, then I prove myself to be a transgressor. They think by rebuilding the law, I'm making myself a sinner. But Christianity doesn't destroy the law, we must remember. Jesus didn't say, I've come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 31, Paul says that by putting my faith in Christ, the law is actually established, not nullified. So I don't believe that Paul's saying, if I rebuild the law, as if the law had been destroyed by Christ. I think there are really only two options here in this passage. Here's the first option, and this is the most popular one. That Paul's talking about rebuilding his identity under the law. Or in other words, rebuilding self-righteousness. If I rebuild what I destroyed, meaning when I became a Christian, I destroyed my self-righteousness and I destroyed my identity under the law. If I rebuild this by doing what you're doing, Peter, or by, doing, by following these Jews and saying, hey, you know, I used to think it was righteousness by faith, but now I'm going back to the law to establish my own righteousness. If I, if I rebuild my own identity under the law, I'm just proving myself to be a sinner by the law. This is probably the most common interpretation. But this is not the interpretation that I believe Paul, that uh, is true to what Paul is saying. Here's the other interpretation. I believe when Paul says, if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He's talking about the gospel. If I rebuild the gospel, which I have destroyed, or if I rebuild the things of the Christian faith, the teachings of the Christian faith, then I prove myself to be a transgressor. The real question here in these two different interpretations is, is Paul talking about apostasy or conversion? If it's the first interpretation, that this is talking about his identity under law, in verse 18 he's talking about apostasy. If I rebuild my identity under the law, that is, if I apostatize from Christ and go back to the law, after understanding grace, then I prove myself to be a transgressor. So, you see how that would be about apostasy. But the interpretation that I think is correct is that this is talking about conversion. Meaning, if I rebuild what I once destroyed, and this is now Paul speaking from personal experience, meaning, if I come now, I return, I go to the gospel that I was trying to destroy, 
Then I prove myself to be a transgressor. I'm not made a transgressor by Christ. I'm proving I'm a transgressor by Christ by the teachings of the Christian faith. I believe this for two reasons. Number one, and by the way, whichever interpretation you take, it ultimately makes no difference because they both are basically saying the same thing, just from a different angle. But verse 18 answers verse 17. And verse 17 parallels verse 18. If while seeking to be justified in Christ, this is conversion, we ourselves are found sinners. So in verse 18 when he says, I proved myself to be a transgressor, I believe he's talking about that process of conversion when he's seeking to be justified in Christ. While seeking to be justified in Christ, I'm found a sinner. Is Christ the minister of sin? No! Because the parallel of seeking to be justified in Christ is I'm rebuilding what I was once destroying. And if you look at chapter 1, verse 23, I believe, personally, that there's a connection between these two verses. In chapter 1, verse 23, they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy or once destroyed. So I think perhaps what Paul is saying here is that I was trying to destroy this message of righteousness through faith. I was trying to destroy this preaching of Christ alone. I was trying to destroy this idea that Jews and Gentiles can are just justified through faith, not by the law. But when I seek to be justified by Christ, or another way of putting that is when I rebuild what the things I was destroying as a, as a persecutor of the church, I am found a sinner. Christ is not making me a sinner, but he's exposing the truth that I am a sinner. I prove myself to be one through the teaching of the Christian faith. And I think verse 19 elaborates further on this. A major part of gospel preaching is illuminating the law. Just read the book of Romans. Paul says, according to my gospel, everyone's going to be judged by Jesus Christ, and he's going to judge the secrets of your heart, and he's going to do it by the law. And only the doers of the law will be just before God, not the hearers of the law only. This, Paul says, is a part of his gospel. You read Romans and you realize, wow, the preaching of Christ includes the preaching of the law, the true preaching of the law, and the challenging of self-righteous people. You preach the law, Mr. Self-Righteous Person, you rest in it. Let me ask you a question. Do you keep it? That's the question of the gospel, that the gospel asks. Verse 19 is unspeakably shocking for any Pharisee. Douglas Moo says that the juxtaposition of through the law and to the law is deliberately paradoxical, even provocative. That Paul is actually being a little provocative here in verse 19. When he says, for I through the law died to the law. That would shock any uh, Jew in his day. That would shock any religious person today if they just stop and think about what he's saying here. I through the law died to the law. Why? So that I might live unto God. Now this is the opposite of what Judaism taught. Judaism was very clear. You want to live unto God? you got to keep the law. You need to not die to the law. You need to do what the law says. It's only by following the law, being under the law, submitting yourself to the law, that you can ever hope to have any life with God or any relationship with God. And on the contrary, it's when you're lawless and you don't have the law and you don't follow the law, that's when you're dead. 
And Paul says the exact opposite here. He says, no, no, no. I died to the law so that I might live unto God. I cannot live unto God and have a relationship with God and be right with God or reconciled to God if the basis of that life and the basis of that relationship is the law. The complete opposite of what Judaism teaches and what every other self-righteous religion in this world teaches. Just go to any other go to any other religious institution and they will make it very clear to you that if you want to be right with God, here's the law that you need to follow. If you don't follow it, tough for you. No relationship with God. Paul shows us that the law does not bring us life. For the wages of sin is death, and you cannot live unto God and have a relationship with God precisely because of your sin. And your sin problem is precisely because of the law, because you're under the law, because the law requires you to be righteous, and you're not. You cannot have relationship or life with God. And Paul shows us here the truth that we as Christians understand. The law itself teaches us to die to it. That's the purpose of the law, he says here in 2.19. How did I die to the law? It was through the law. It was the law itself that taught me to die to it as the basis of having a relationship with God. For the law itself shows us what righteousness truly is. You that teach the law, do you not hear the law? Don't you listen to what it's saying? Don't you take an honest look at it and doesn't that crush you? If you're following the law for, as a basis for a relationship with God, it must mean you're not listening to it. You're not being taught by it. Because if you were taught by it, it would show you its standard. The law shows us what righteousness is and it shows us our sin when we consider ourselves in the light of that perfect righteous standard. Love God with all of your heart soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the other commands hang on this. If you look at that and compare your life to it, you'll see that you're a sinner. At some point, every person must learn the lesson of the law. At some point, every Christian learned the lesson of the law that you cannot be justified by it and have a relationship with God on the basis of it. Have you ever tried that, anybody here? Anybody tried to have a relationship with God on the basis of law? That is, you get up in the morning and you think that you and God are going to be on good terms today, provided that you follow the rules and do all the right things and don't commit the big sins. You ever lived that way? I know what it's like to live that way. Does it work? No. It doesn't work. That basis of having a relationship with God and thinking that you and God are close always fails. You always discover that you're a sinner. You always compromise your standards. And you always feel that tension. Oh no, God's not happy with me today. Oh, God's upset with me. Oh, God and I are not tight today. God and I are not close. I'm going to have to get better next time. It always leads to despair and you eventually give up. If you don't give up, it's just an illusion. And you're not listening to the actual law of God. It's funny that even as Christians... We know this is true and that we can't have a relationship with God on the basis of our own obedience. And yet, how many of us, even as Christians, wake up in the morning and we daily think that's how it is or we daily walk as if that's the way it is? But it's not. Only through Christ are we right with God. And that doesn't change 
after you become a Christian. It's not that's the message for non-Christians, and when you become a Christian, you're in, and then now the law starts in again. Brothers and sisters, tomorrow morning when you wake up, wake up and realize that you are right with God through Jesus Christ, and that hasn't changed. Nothing is going to change throughout the day. You are righteous before God, blameless in His sight. You are united to Him through faith in Jesus Christ, and that doesn't change based upon your performance in that day. That's how you walk this road with joy. Just give it a try. Actually, I have a friend back in New Brunswick, and he was under the opinion, the opposite opinion, and he thought that, no, no, to be close to God and to be right with God, you have to keep the commandments. And he tried that for many years, and he just failed his whole life. And when he, uh, through the Internet, was hearing sermons of mine and writings of mine that a relationship with God is based solely on grace and not by what we do, and you should get up in the morning and think that you're right with God through faith, that's the truth to reckon. He didn't believe it at first. He says, no, that's not true. That's not the way it is. It can't be. But he realized, you know, I've been failing so badly the other way. I'm just going to give what Eli said a try. I'm just going to get up tomorrow morning and I'm just going to believe that Christ alone is the basis of my relationship with God and see how things go. Two weeks later, he emailed me and said, Eli, I've had the best two weeks of my life. I've had the most peaceful two weeks of my life, the most joyful two weeks of my life, and I've sinned less in these two weeks than I have in the rest of my life because I'm not striving to maintain a relationship with God. I'm just resting in the in the grace I have through Christ. Try it. Verse 20 and 21. Here's the point that I'd like I'd like to draw our attention to in the last part of this sermon this morning. There's so much here. Uh, I'd have to preach another sermon just on verse 20 to get everything in here. But I'd like for this morning just to really draw our attention to one main point from verse 20. And that is this. That self-righteousness is crushed to a bloody pulp by the cross of Christ. Now, of course, there would be no hope for any kind of relationship with God without Christ because you cannot just walk away from the law. Verse 19 says, I died to the law so that I might live unto God. Now that's something that you can't do apart from Christ. You can't just get up one day and say, I'm done with this law thing. Okay, God, let's just do it without the law. You have to die to the law. Verse 19 and verse 20 are inseparable because there is no way to die to the law apart from Christ. You need to die to it and you can't apart from Christ. You need a new basis for a relationship with God other than the law, and there is none apart from Christ, even if you wanted there to be one. It has to be through Christ and through his death. Only because Jesus came and died in our place can we be free from the law and its demands and its jurisdictions and have a relationship with God other than the law. Only because he loved us and gave himself for us is there any hope for us? Because Christ could have, and God could have just as well said, no, I'm not going to send Christ for these ungratefuls and these sinners. They're under the law, and yes, they're, they're dying under the law, but it serves them right for being so disobedient. God didn't owe us anything when he came to rescue us. 
But as Paul says here in verse 20, it was because he loved us. And put your own name in there as Paul does. He loved me. Because he loved you and he saw you dying, a wretched sinner under the law, deserving that punishment, deserving your own wages. He says, I don't want to give him the wages that he deserves because I love him. He loved us and he gave himself for us to rescue us from our predicament. But not only does the cross save us, the cross is also the place of the greatest illumination of our sin. I'd like us to consider Paul's words here, I am crucified with Christ. Paul's understanding was not only that Jesus died or that Jesus was crucified. That did not exhaust his understanding of the death of Christ. Not only did Christ die, but Paul understood that he, with Jesus, died. And some Bibles put this in the past tense, I have been crucified with Christ, but in the Greek it's actually the present tense. I am crucified with Christ. That was a reality that Paul reckoned every day. Yes, it happened in the past. When Jesus died and I put my faith in him, I was crucified with him. But he didn't just say, I was crucified. I am crucified. I am currently right now a crucified man. It's the great mystery that another person took our place and died our death and became our sin. Mystery of mysteries. Don't, don't expect me to get that out of my mouth sufficiently on Sunday mornings. That's just a groaning too deep to be uttered. That Jesus took our place and died our death and because of that, we died. And what this means, it, when, we, when we see that we also were crucified with Christ, is that the cross is a revelation of God's opinion of us. Because we died on the cross with Christ if we believe in Him, if we're Christians. The cross is a revelation of God's opinion of us. When you see Christ on the cross, you see God's opinion of you and your righteousness. What does God think of you and your righteousness? I mean, when He judges you, how righteous are you? Do I accept your righteousness? Do I think you're cute? Do I think you're nice? Do I like you're trying? If you want to see what God thinks of you apart from Christ, if what God thinks of you in and of your own righteousness, look at Christ on the cross. And this is not just for non-Christians, but for Christians on a daily basis to consider the cross and to see themselves hanging there with Christ on the cross. For there God's wrath was poured out upon Christ on account of us. It was because of you and me that Jesus died and all of the things that happened to him, happened to him. God's wrath was poured out on him because of us. Look at Jesus and see what God thinks about you and your righteousness. Jesus did not merely die, but he was crucified. He didn't die peacefully in his bed. God chose the most gruesome and painful method of execution to communicate to us what he thinks of human righteousness. Everything about the cross speaks to us about our own human righteousness and what God thinks about it. When you think about the cross, always understand that it's an instrument of death for criminals. It's an instrument of death for criminals. It's not 
euthanasia. We need to put this man out of his misery, so let's crucify him. This is what criminals deserve, deserved in the Roman Empire. Anyone in the first century, when they heard the word crucifixion, would have known this is for bad people. This is for people who have broken the law. This is for people who are worthy of death. Well, the Bible says we're all worthy of death. The cross communicates that we all are criminals before God, violators of his law, and worthy of our wages, which is death. The cross is the most painful and shameful way to die. This is what we deserve. All dignity is stripped away when a person's crucified on a cross. There's nothing dignified about it. You're naked, you're beaten, you're up there, and everybody knows you're, you deserve it. All dignity and comfort are gone. The cross was designed by men to make a man die in the most uncomfortable way possible. And the politician Cicero, just before Jesus was born, was he talked about the cross or the crucifixion. And Cicero thought the crucifixion was the most disgusting, undignified, and horrible thing known to man. He said that no Roman citizen should think about it, should hear about it, should see it, or even think about it. It was so bad. That was Cicero's opinion of crucifixion. Don't even let it cross a Roman's mind. Don't even talk about it. Keep it far from us because it's so horrible. That was Cicero's opinion of crucifixion. But a Jew, of course, when they thought about the crucifixion, would have recalled Deuteronomy 21, which said that being hung on a tree is a sign that you're accursed from God. And so when a Jew considered the cross of Christ, not only are they considering that the place where criminals deserve to die, that's the most undignified and uncomfortable way imaginable to die, so horrible you shouldn't even think about it, but that's also a sign that you're accursed from God. That God's opinion of you is that you're worth casting out and not being blessed and not having peace, and not having life, but having the opposite. When you look at the cross, do you just see Jesus hanging there, or do you see, I am crucified with Christ, that he died there because of me, and that all of the things that the cross is meant to communicate, and that God, why God chose it, so that it would communicate it, do you see it being communicated about you? Do you see your self-righteousness crushed by the cross? Because there's nothing beautiful about the cross except that he bore our sins. And that makes it the most beautiful thing of all. There's nothing beautiful about it except when you understand that he died in your place because he loved you. And it's only because of that that contrary to Cicero, we think about the cross and we encourage us and the Bible tells us to think about the cross and to hear about the cross and to look towards the cross, not because we like looking at these horrible things, but because it's so beautiful what Christ has done for us and so important that we understand its message. I think Paul probably never understood his own sin until he pondered the cross because he, he was a man who was around the law all the time and he still thought he was righteous. But I think it wasn't until he considered Christ having died for him, that he realized that all of his righteousness, in his own words, is done.
there we see God's opinion of man and the religions of the world. Look at the bloody, pulpy body of Jesus. And that's God's opinion of man and his righteousness and all the mannish religions of this world. For all we like sheep have gone astray, and God laid upon the representative sheep, the lamb, Jesus, the sins of us all. And what happened to him should have happened to us and mysteriously did happen to us when we put our faith in Christ. John Newton wrote, Thus while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. So Newton saw that in the death of Christ his sins were displayed in their blackest hue, and yet there was the place of forgiveness. This is the death that everyone must die who wants to go to heaven. It's not the death everyone's going to undergo, because not all believe in Jesus. But if you want to go to heaven, if you want to be saved, if you want to be forgiven and be reconciled to God, you must recognize your sin and put your faith in Christ and die with Him. You must see God's wrath against your sin in Christ and put your hope in God's grace and in God's love displayed also in Christ for you. You must give up your self-righteousness, realize that it's dung and loss and filthy rags and worth nothing to God and receive the righteousness that God will give you through faith in Jesus Christ. This death only severs your relationship to the law, to sin, and to death, and gives you a new life and a new relationship with God. That's not based upon what you do, but it's based upon Christ who lives in you and you in Him, meaning a union of your identity through faith. He takes your sin, and you receive righteousness in Him through what He has done. Paul said, this is the life that he now lives. The life that I now live, it's not me, it's Christ. It's not my righteousness, it's the righteousness I receive through him. It's because of being crucified with him that I live now unto God. Not on the basis of law, but on the basis of his grace. In conclusion, look at verse 21. Here are your only options. I seek righteousness by Christ, or I seek righteousness by myself and by law-keeping. If it's by yourself, Paul says, then Christ died for nothing. If you could have righteousness through what you do, then why don't you look into the blood-filled eyes of Jesus and tell God that you don't need it? And this doesn't communicate what you think about me, God. And I can make it just fine on my own. Hebrews 10.29 says that to do that would be to trample underfoot the Son of God and to regard as unclean His blood and insult God's grace. To say that I can be righteous through my own law-keeping and through my own effort. That I can provide some basis for relationship with God myself and not through Christ. If that's you, there's nothing left for you but destruction because you've rejected your only hope. But for us Christians, we don't look at Christ and say, I don't need you, do we? We look at Christ and we give thanks to God and we worship God and we praise Him for what He has given us. And we hear the wonderful word of grace. And we realize that no matter how sinful we are, no matter 
how unrighteous we are, no matter how many times I blow it tomorrow, when I wake up in the morning and I blow it, I realize that the basis of my life is Christ and not me. For Christ did not die in vain, but he died for me and for my sins so that I could be saved freely by God's grace. And this alone shows us who God is. It shows us what he thinks, what he thinks about man's righteousness, and it shows us his great love for unrighteous, sinful man. We have an amazing God, amen, who loves us even though we're unworthy. Let us worship and adore him when we consider that we are crucified with Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us every day to remember that we are crucified with Christ and to think about the cross of our Lord and realize all the things that are communicated there. I thank you for every believer in Christ here today, Lord, who has realized that their self-righteousness is dumb and worth nothing and have put their refuge in Christ. I pray that you would refresh and encourage them, Lord, and give them daily a vision of how great you love them, so much to bear their sins away and to take their wages for them. Lord, I pray that you would save many people here in this city, because there are so many people here who are spitting in your face saying that they don't need you because they can be righteous through what they do. I pray that here in Logan, Lord, in this valley, there would be a, a revelation of the cross that people would see, like Paul saw, that this had to happen because this is what we deserve and that no one is good. And everyone needs your amazing grace. Lord, please strike us with this truth so that we would give you praise and honor and glory as we will do forever and ever when we behold the Lamb who is slain and he washed us from our sins through his own blood. Help us to start now rejoicing and giving you praise through what you've done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.